Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I need to hear that. Yes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Worthy is his name. Anything of value that we have is from him. Where we're going that's of any value is to him. He is our beginning, our end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is above everything, in everything. And we do everything in His name, in His name alone. Not by what this world says that we need to do. Not why all the smartest people in this world, the governments, not by any of those things, but by Jesus Christ and His truth, the real truth, the truth that stands beyond everything. Amen? Amen. Well, it's great seeing you. Please sit down. Please sit down. Now, the children, the children, you may go downstairs now. So please, they have some special things waiting for you downstairs. Keep you guys fun and active and learning. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. All right. Okay, so today I'm going to continue on the sermons that I've been sort of teaching on the Beatitudes. Now, last time I spoke, it was on Father's Day, but the two before that was on the Beatitudes at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we started by talking, and I don't know, George, if you can bring up the, uh, the graph that I use. Yes. So it's a little complicated, but this is the kind of stuff I do on, in my spare time. But the Beatitudes really are nine Beatitudes. Some people say there are eight, and the reason why they say there are eight is if you look at the far right, it says third person, third person, third, and then the last one is first person. But the reality is that it says blessed nine times. Sometimes people overthink it. And the Beatitude says blessed nine times. Now, if you're here for the first time, a little bit of background. We are very word-oriented. You're not going to get a 15-minute sermon. You're going to get a very, very in-depth sermon, whether it's me or Pastor Melody or Pastor Dino. We do believe in the word, and we believe that in this world, especially now more than ever, it is a foundation in the knowledge of the word that keeps us strong. Without the word, we can be swayed in so many ways. And in the end times, the Bible warns us there's going to be a lot of false prophets. And there's a lot of false teachings out there. There's so many even creeping in within our churches, even denominations no longer are a refuge for us to be able to hold on to and trust that we can actually be safe. It's crazy. But the only thing we have and the most important thing we have is the Word of God. I remember when I used to do newcomers class, we used to have newcomers class here and we used to do it for a few weeks. The first thing... I would say, if anything ever comes out of my mouth that isn't backed by the Word of God, then don't believe it. 
don't believe it. It has to align with the Word of God. Now, going back to the graph, if we can put it up again. All right. So we talked about the first triad of the, of the Beatitudes, and I'm going to go through it because a lot of you weren't probably here, don't remember. But the first one is about poor in spirit, the first three. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? It means that I understand how lacking I am of the spiritual need that I have. I am so distant because of my sin and my state from where God's perfection and beauty. I am so poor spiritually. And because I am so poor, it should lead me to be meek. And by being meek, I understand my poverty. But by understanding my poverty, I mourn for those who sin. I mourn when I sin. I mourn when others sin. And we see this even in Paul's epistles where he says he mourns for those who sin and fall. Then we talked about the second triad of blesseds, righteousness. Those who seek righteousness, not our righteousness, God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, his truth, his way of how we should live. And by doing that, we then receive Christ, and it is Christ who makes us pure in heart, not of ourselves, but it's because of his righteousness. Do you see how it interlinks with poor in spirit? If we don't understand how to be poor in spirit, we could never receive Christ's righteousness, which makes us pure in heart. And when you become pure in heart, you become merciful because you realize where you are, how poor you are, and what it took to bridge the gap between where you are and where you're going and where you need to be. And today we're going to look at the last one, the last three. And the last three talks about us being peacemakers. All right? Talks about us being peacemakers. So let's get into the word today. And so I have a question for you. Are you in the dark? Are you kept in the dark? You know, sometimes at work we might feel that way or at school or amongst neighbors or in society. You know, strange things are happening in our society. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's funny. Uh, and sometimes I feel like I'm in the dark. I'm going, like, what's going on? Like, I just don't understand it. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. An example. Uh, the difference between men and women. In our society, they want to eliminate all differences. Completely. It's crazy. I like the French, vive la différence. You know? Long live the differences. I could never understand what it is to have a motherly instinct or to carry a child. I would never have that privilege. I can't. And that's a beautiful privilege that I, I, a man could never understand. But that's the way God made it. But God gave men different things. And it's funny how, you know, when we, we hear about the Canadian, you know, women's soccer team and, and the women's uh, soccer team wanting equal wage, 
You know, guys, they played 14-year-olds and they got beaten. Women and men are not the same. They're not. They're different. And society doesn't want to accept that. That's just a reality. They're different strengths. My boss is a woman. She has capabilities I don't have. That's, that's a different place. Doesn't mean that your boss can't be a woman. Just depends on where you are, where you work, what you do. But in society, it's like trying to do that everywhere. It's kind of nuts. That's not the only thing. We're faced with so many other things that are challenging what we value as Christians. And it's been around for a long time, but it is actually making us look like we're the ones in the dark when it comes to society. By the way we live, they see us as backwards. We're the ones that are in the dark. We're the ones that are ignorant, uninformed. Right? I mean, that's the way they look at us. You know, you, okay, you Christians, you can go and live the way you want. But you know, you guys are backwards in the dark. You're living in the past. The future has come. What are you going to do about it? I'm going I'm to do a little exercise right now. I'm going to make 12 statements, and then I want you to guess where I live, okay? 12 statements. And you guys can say it out loud. Just let me do the 12 statements, and you guys can say it out loud. You ready? I work a hard day's work, and then I get to go home to my family. I make enough to live well compared to other places in the world, but the gap between me and the very rich is quite big. I live in a very individualistic society in comparison to other cultures. The culture in which I live in is very open to multiple forms of sexuality that are considered normal and should be accepted. The family structure cannot be defined by a single perspective, but by many different forms. My society is very legalistic, with lots of laws, lawyers, courts, and systems of government. All religions are embraced and encouraged to coexist. However, if there are religious beliefs that go against what the state values, the state value is to be adhered to publicly and in culture, and the opposing suppressed and at best kept private. The infrastructure in which I live in this world is world-class and makes it easy to live. I can get around, I can do things. Architecture is modern. Sporting entertainment, live events and theatrical productions are things that I can enjoy when I'm bored and just want to get out of the house. However, environmentally, I feel like we are destroying society and poisoning ourselves, and I see an increase in mental illness, illness throughout society. Where do I live? Where? Toronto. Anyone else? Canada. Canada? Yeah. United States. Yeah, the darkness. Anywhere else? The world. Yeah, the world. Yeah, Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> that could also be first century Rome. In the Roman Empire. 
In fact, all those statements are true in first century Rome. Every single one of them. Now, there are a lot of different things about Rome in that time, technology and things like that. But most people worked in the Roman Empire. Roman citizens went to work every day. There was the working class and the rich class. There wasn't a real middle class. It was very individualistic, very much. Roman citizenship held high. Remember Paul, how he, when he had Roman citizen, how they, everybody backed off? Very complex legal system. And the culture on sexuality, wow. You know, it was, heterosexuality was considered the best form of sexuality. You know why? Because you can have offspring, and hopefully males, so that they can join the army. But homosexuality, um, pedophilia, all those things were accepted. Not a problem, it's just that you can't have offspring to join the army. So a lot of people would have family structures where they would have a female wife, but they would have a lot of other relationships. It was very legalistic, very much so. Procedures, you see it with Paul when he was flogged and then they were scared that they had flogged a Roman citizen. The infrastructure, oh my goodness. There are still roads today that the Romans built and the pathways, I mean, they've built over them, but the pathways are still there. Some of our legal structure is still the same as Rome. Sporting entertainment, Olympics, theater. Two thousand years. 2,000 years. So why do I bring this up? Because I see a lot of people who are saying that they're shocked by what's going on in our world. I hear it all the time. What's going on in our society? How are we supposed to survive? And today's sermon is actually based on a question that a sister in this church came to me and said, Julio, I know you work, and I know at your workplace you have to deal with a lot of stuff. How do you do it? I didn't have time to talk to her, but I have set two sermons, part one today and part two today, at how we will survive in this dark world. Because why? Because it's already in the Bible. You see, it's the exact same thing that Paul and Jesus and the disciples and the early Christians all had to deal with. There's nothing really new in human nature. They knew how Roman society lived. They knew that as people of the Old Testament, that there was only one way that they were allowed to live sexually, but that the rest of the world lived in very different ways. And there was this duality. They were restricted from certain behaviors, but the rest of the world was free to behave the way they wanted. 
as long as you didn't step over the state, and the state could crush you. So why are we shocked? Why are we shocked? Maybe because we hope, we hope that this world will become, you know, more Christian and, you know, hear the truth and walk to the truth. But Jesus gave us a warning. He says there are two roads, right? There's the narrow road and the wide road. That will never change. And there will be a climax that happens when a great awakening will happen before the coming of Christ. And there will be a large, large conflict. But as we march, we are on a narrow road, saints. We are. So today I want to talk about how do we survive in a world like this? Because you see, Paul and Jesus, disciples, everyone had to deal with that. And it's in Scripture. So those of you that have to work in a place where they have these policies that are counter to everything that we believe and hold true also existed back then. There are positive, affirming type of actions in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our government that are contrary to everything that stands for Christianity. Back then too. So what changes? And so today, part one is, the first thing is we need to change and we need to be prepared. Because the reality is, we're not the ones in the dark. The world is. They might not see it that way. But saints, you are not in the dark. You are children of the light. You have received the light, you have received the truth, you have received the word of God. You are not in the dark. They are. And you know what? That puts a huge responsibility on your shoulders. Huge. Let's read the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Peacemakers. We are to be known as peacemakers. In a world of chaos, I mean, this is Jesus on, on, in this sermon. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, it's an interesting, I mean, being in Israel is, is a really interesting um, experience because you actually go to the place where more or less Jesus said this sermon. It was, it's kind of cool. So you look down and you see the place and you can see, you know, there's the lake and the hills that go up and you can see Jesus standing at the top and, and giving this sermon. And it must have been, I don't know, an hour, two hours, three hours. But when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it, it's, it's just picking the most important pieces in a, into a structure, right? And the Beatitudes is one of them. And the first thing that Luke does is he organizes it by the guidance of the Holy Spirit into nine sections. 
and he organizes it like this in the written word. And the Holy Spirit asks him to come and say, blessed. And we, we believe that Jesus actually said those words in that way. But there is a structure to even how it's written. And we can see that the peacemakers, the aspect of peacemakers is very, very different than how the Pharisees were perceived by society. I mean, the Pharisees, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, were very rebellious. And there were certain aspects about how they viewed the Romans and the Greeks that didn't make them come across as peacemakers. But we are called to be peacemakers. We are called to be peacemakers in our workplace. We are called to be peacemakers in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our homes. Everywhere we go, we are to be peacemakers. What does that mean? That means wherever you go and there is no peace, because that's most of the places, you come with the peace of the Spirit in you, and you bring peace. That is what you're being called to do. And what happens? Well, we jump to 11, and, and you know how, how I, I said we should read this. You go from the first to the third, and then to the center point. And then we go, well, blessed are you when others revile you. And this is where I was saying the structure. All of them is blessed are those. And then all of a sudden, in the last one, the last statement, it goes from blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. All for the 11. And then the 12th one, it says, blessed are you. It switches. It directly points at you. It calls the reader you to account. And it says this. People will revile you and persecute you and say lies about you. When you're a peacemaker, when you live the way that Christ is asking you to live here, he has given you a warning. You're not going to be persecuted for other things. He's saying, these are the things that you should be persecuted for. Being meek. Being merciful. Being a peacemaker. Peacemaker. Are we peacemakers? And yes, people will hate you. People will persecute you. That's happened to me at work. Has it happened to you at work or in school? When you stand for what you believe? And then verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know why? Because if you follow the Beatitudes and everything that the Beatitudes teach us, you are putting on the righteousness of Christ in your life. And you are living differently than anywhere else. People won't understand you. Neighbors won't understand you. And guess what, people? The vast majority of Christians won't understand you because I tell you, the vast majority of people in this world who call themselves Christian don't live this way. They don't. And it's sad to say. It's sad to say. But this is the paradox. That you are blessed when you're persecuted. 
Do you believe that? Do you understand that? How can you be blessed and be persecuted? How can that ever even be a possibility? There's this uh, analogy. I was reading this story about a preacher who was talking to a builder. And uh, he asked, he asked it, it, was, it was a uh, situation where they had to destroy an existing infrastructure to build something new, right? And so he went to the construction site and he asked the foreman, he goes, how long will this take to tear down? It was a big building. He goes, oh, a couple of days. And then how about to build it? He goes, oh, months, maybe a year or two. So he says, so you're telling me that to destroy something, it only takes a couple of days, but to build something, it takes months or years. And he said, yes. And then this preacher thought to himself, Lord, who am I? Do I destroy or do I build? And you see, the Beatitudes are teaching us how to be builders. And building takes time. It's not something that can be done quickly. In fact, when we try to rush things, when we try to be a light and salt in this world, and we try to rush it, you're probably going to destroy more than you build. Far more than you build. And so if you're going to be persecuted, I want you to be persecuted for the right reasons. And you're going to say, Julie, that's a funny statement. Why would you want me to be persecuted? Well, it says that you're going to be blessed if you're persecuted. But I want you to be persecuted for the right reasons. So what are the wrong reasons to be persecuted? What's the wrong way to be persecuted? Well, I think an interesting way to understand this, I just showed you how the Romans lived very much morally like we do today, right? So let's look at how the religious leaders looked at people and how they wanted society to be during that time. And let's compare that to what Jesus taught. And we can really look at this in the, in the times of conflict. You see, when there was conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus, there were two different worldviews going on. Very different. So let's look at what the Pharisees were like. And the scribes and the priests and all the religious leaders. Ready? Got your scripture ready? Your, uh, they're going to put it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, ready to flip? There's a lot of scripture today. There's a lot. Sorry about that, but it's going to be a lot. So, you ready? Matthew 9:11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? So the first thing we know about the Pharisees, and this is something they they were more worried about what it looked like and who you hung out with. They were more worried about the outside. What was perceived. Oh, you hang out with the wrong crowd. Now, don't get me wrong, the Bible warns us not to befriend people who are going to cause us to fall. But if we're going to be a light, we will have to be a light to people that don't come to church. We'll have to work with people, go to school with people who aren't Christian. 
And guess what? Those are the people that need the light. <laughs> but the Pharisees didn't see it that way. Pharisees want to draw a hard line between who we hang out with and them. It's us versus them. There's them and then there's us, and that's it. And why are you hanging out with them, those people? They behave this way. We shouldn't even talk to them. The other thing that the Pharisees had is they were always worried about being right. They wanted to be righteous. <laughs> Look what happened in Matthew 20, 22, verses 34 and onwards. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, this is the Sadducees are trying to trick Jesus, and, and, and Jesus made them look bad. And they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Jesus turned the tables on them in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how is it that then David said, in the spirit calls him Lord? You see, the Pharisees were always trying to be self-righteous. They knew the scripture better than anyone else. They're the ones that owned all authority of the scripture. The Pentecostals have it all. We're the ones that know all the authority of the scripture. We have it all right. Not the Baptists, not the Presbyterians. We have it all right. Don't get me wrong, I'm here in a Pentecostal church because I choose to be in a Pentecostal church, but as soon as we start to think that we have it all right and they don't, we're going to have a rude awakening when we go see Jesus, when he calls us home. Because I am sure that we don't have it all right. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit, is to recognize that we might be wrong and have it wrong. And maybe there's two rights, we just don't know how to connect the dots. Or that our church is better than the church down the street. Why? Because we get it right more often. We have it right. We interpret scripture right. Our preachers are better. Our worship is better. We're more righteous. The other thing that the Pharisees didn't like was Mark 7, 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with their impure hands. They were so religious. So not only were they worried about what it looked like, they were more worried about things that were external and being with the appearance of self-righteous, but they also were very legalistic. And we in the church can be like that. Even amongst each other. I, I remember, I've, I've told you guys this many, I had to travel uh, to Brazil and Portugal. And I went to church. Both Portuguese nations, both have the assemblies of God. And pastors actually fly back and forth between and start, and even, you know, go to, some Brazilian pastors go to Portugal and some Portuguese pastors go to Brazil. But the one thing that really is interesting is that if you're a Brazilian pastor and you go to Portugal, 
there's something you're going to have to put up with. Men wear jewelry. In Portugal, men wear jewelry. But in a lot of Assemblies of God churches, in Brazil, men don't wear bracelets. I remember a time I used to, I used to have a lot of Brazilian friends. I said at one point in time in Brazil, you, couldn't even, you weren't even allowed to play soccer if you were Christian. You know? And today we create the same rules. We create rules in our churches. We even have our own rules. Oh, you got to be the way you dress. What would happen if I invited the Toronto Alliance Church's worship team up here to do worship? They would come up with maybe a t-shirt, flip-flops, and shorts. And the worship leader would take off his flip-flops when he'd get up the stairs, he'd throw them off, and he'd be barefoot. What would you think? Disrespectful. How dare he go barefoot on the stage? I ask you, go down and, and visit the church and, and be part of their worship service. And tell me you don't feel the Spirit of God in that room. Tell me. Traditions that need to be followed. Matthew twenty-two seventeen. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Why were they doing that? They were trying to trick Jesus. You know why? Because if Jesus said, yeah, you should pay taxes, see, the Jews hated any, anybody who was non-Jew. You know why? Because of their lifestyle. They were, to them, they were filthy. Whether you're Samaritan or a Canaanite or a Roman, you guys lead filthy lives. You guys don't even have proper families. You have slaves as concubines. You even practice pedophilia. They hated them. Galatians 2.14, we even see this with the disciples. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, as Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, what was happening was, in the early church, there were a lot of rules in the Old Testament church. Lots of them. And so as the Gentiles were being saved... The Jews wanted them to follow all the rules. And if you didn't, then they didn't want to associate with you. And Peter fell into that trap. John 7.32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. See, the Pharisees were more worried about their status and their prestige 
You see, it's all external. Do you see the pattern here? Rules. And then they want to signs and wonders, Matthew 12, 38. So, you know, the scribes ask, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They wanted signs and wonders. Oh, if I don't see signs and wonders, then you can't be, you can't be real. If I don't see signs and wonders, then there's a problem in this church. If you wear flip-flops on this stage and I don't see signs and wonders, there's something wrong. You're not real. And if we start behaving like this in society, if we start to think like this, if we believe like this in church, that affects us how we relate in society. Do you get that? If we start to behave like this, we start to look at each other, how are you dressed? Why aren't you doing things the way I want you to do them? Why don't you preach that way? How come I don't see any signs and wonders? Why is all of this happening? Who do you hang out with? How dare you play soccer? You have a bracelet on. Tattoos. Oh. You'll see lots of tattoos downtown in church. Whether you agree with them or not. Maybe somebody had them before they were Christian. But when you see them, the first thing that comes to mind is, hmm, evil. Right? But you see, these attitudes that we carry in church affects us when we go into the world. Just like the Pharisees. You begin to hate people. You begin to judge them. If we judge each other, you're judging them. They know it. They sense it. There's no meekness. Where's the meekness? The poor in spirit. Where's the mercifulness? Where's the peacemaker? Here's a, a Bible study that I give you guys, and I challenge you. Take all the interactions that Jesus had with people in the Bible. And in one column, put all the religious leaders, those that knew better. In the other column, put everyone else. The Samaritans, the Gentiles, the Roman centurion. Put them all on the other column. The poor. And then compare how Jesus interacted with each group. You know where I'm getting at, don't you? When the church becomes like that, we're useless to God. We can't be a light because we're no longer meek. We don't mourn, we judge. We need to have our minds transformed here in the church if we're to be effective. If they could be effective in the Roman world, I mean, they were persecuted big time. Nero burned Christians as candles on the streets. I was in Rome and I saw, you know, the first ever recorded 
form of graffiti is a, a Christian writing, protesting how Christians are being thrown into animals, wild animals, and killed. On the Roman Colosseum wall, Christians were being thrown in there. If you were a Christian and your neighbor didn't like you, all they had to do was take you to court. They could make something up. You know why? Because the legalistic system there basically said that before you actually go before the judge, you had to burn incense and worship the emperor. And a Christian wouldn't do it. And so you were found guilty automatically. So I'm going to sue you for a million dollars. Okay, let's go before the, the judge. Why are you suing them? Well, because they destroyed my property and they're doing something wrong. All right, well, let's burn incense. Here you go, I'm burning incense. Christian doesn't. Why aren't you burning incense? Because I only worship my God. Okay, you're guilty. You pay him a million bucks. That happened. I might be oversimplifying it, but that happened back then. That's what they went through. So what should be a Christian's reaction when you're persecuted? Should we start pushing ourselves away? Separating ourselves from them? Oh, that's them. That's the world, you know. They don't, they don't look like us. They don't behave like us. They don't think like us. They don't believe like us. So I'm going to keep away from them as far as I can. And I'm going to complain and, 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 you know, snarl at them and you know, here comes another stupid policy that the company is putting out let's contrast that to Jesus and what he talked about how a church should behave ready uh, I could have gone on for two hours but I just picked a few okay the most common ones you ready all right, Luke 16:31. He said to them, "If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead." So this is the story about Lazarus, right? With the rich man went by him every day. So goes to heaven and says, "Oh, please send down Lazarus or somebody to tell my brothers and sisters, you know, tell my family." And what Jesus is pointing out? Selfishness. We need to deal with selfishness. Are we hoarding things? Selfishness is a big, big problem. That was one of the biggest things that Jesus dealt with multiple times in Scripture. Not legalism, selfishness. Here's another one. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. This is Luke 20, 46. And they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor and feasts. Pride! First thing that Jesus talked about a lot was selfishness. The second one was pride. Oh, we're Christian. We're better than you guys. You guys don't know how to live. You go waste your money on drugs and alcohol. But we're, you know, we're Christians. We dress conservatively we don't go to those places <laughs> Jesus is talking about the church people who are prideful see that when we start to think like that we're the ones who are prideful 
Jesus is saying, church, selfishness and pride exists in the church. Another one, Matthew 16, 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Unfaithfulness. Some people need a sign. I'm guilty. I wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for a sign. It took my mom being healed of cancer for me to believe that there's a God. I was a doubting Thomas. And thankfully for God's grace, he did that for me. My mom suffered many illnesses that she was not cured of, even to this day. Does that mean that God isn't real because he healed her once and hasn't healed her for the last 40 years of all the ailments that she has? Matthew 7, 11, But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And this was a tradition that was allowed to take place in the church at the time where any money that you had set aside to take care of your parents, you could give to the church. I just saw a video this week on YouTube of the insane lifestyles of preachers. Look it up. Mansions, tens of millions of dollars. And down the street are cities with poor people and homeless. I, I, I saw a home of a preacher, very famous on TV. I'm not going to name them, but you can probably guess who they are. And come on, we've all been guilty of listening to them. And what do they say? Give us your money. If you sow your money with me on this show, in this program right now, you're going to get X amount back. I even heard one of them, like a very famous one says, I'm going to give so much money to God that he's going to owe me. I almost fell off the chair. What? God owes you because you give so much? I was shocked. There was another preacher and was asked, um, you know, there's a woman who gave her next months or two months rent to you because you asked for money and you live in a 15 million dollar home and she might get kicked out of her house do you have a problem with that no i don't have a problem with that jesus is attacking something within us you see, the Pharisees were all about the outward things, who you hang out with, how you dress, what you do and what you don't do. Jesus was getting at something in us, the pride in us. We all have pride, people. Come on, admit it. That's one of my biggest weaknesses, and it's ugly, and it's bad, very ugly. We all have it to different degrees. 
selfishness. Oh my goodness. And this society brings it out in big time, right? We're the biggest consumers in the world. I had a friend, I visited Brazil, I had a friend when she came and went, walked into a grocery store, she almost cried. Hypocrisy, greed, you know, remember the money changers? Just talked about that. Unforgiveness, <laughs> even the disciples had a problem with that. How many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times? <laughs> How many times you seven times? Seven is a good number, it's a godly number. Seven, right? Seven. He was like, seven? How about seven times 77? There's no limit to forgiveness. But you see, that was ingrained in their culture. Eye for an eye. You know, if you're, you know, if somebody does something bad at me at work, I'm going to get them back. I might forgive them once or twice, but eventually, you just wait. It's going to make you look bad the next meeting. Anger. You know, sometimes I see an anger to our society that's not, not right. If anyone is angry with his brother, he is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to counsel, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That is how serious it is to be angry to your brother. But that hatred is like murder. Remember what Jesus taught? If we start to hate the people in this world, and you see, it's a very fine line. You know, I, I hear this a lot. You know, I hate the sin, but not the sinner. You know, when you start going down that road, it's very hard to distinguish between the sin and the sinner. I have very few people that I know that can keep those two separate. Very few. And you know why? Because we start to pick and choose which sins we think are acceptable, more acceptable than others. And that's a problem. As soon as we start to pick and choose, we're not really separating the sin from the sinner. We start to treat the sinner the same way. There is no picking and choosing people. As soon as you start to pick and choose what is sin that's acceptable and what's not, you're going to start to categorize people. Oh, they're the people who do this and they're the people who do that. These are the people who live this lifestyle. These are the people who do drugs and these are the people who wear tattoos and these are the people who swear a lot. As soon as you begin to choose which sins are right and more acceptable or more tolerable than other sins, and you don't see the pride and selfishness that exists within us, see, that's what being poor in spirit is. Being poor in spirit says, okay, I got pride. I have selfishness. I have anger problems. Guess what? I'm a human being. And that's why I'm poor in spirit. 
And if I didn't have those things, then Jesus wouldn't have to come. But because I have those things, Jesus had to come. And because I have those things, I need to live for Jesus every day, every second, every hour. Because I can't on my own live without them. I am poor in spirit. I do seek righteousness because it isn't mine. I don't have righteousness. Christ is righteous. And see, this is what Jesus is talking about. Luke 7, 3, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Do you see the difference between how the Pharisees approached sin and righteousness and how Jesus did? Jesus is all about transforming us on the inside. It's not about externalized things. You know, there was one point, I've said this story so many times, but it's worth saying. I once invited somebody to the church, and they smoked. So they went out back there to smoke. Is smoking a sin? Open your Bible and tell me where smoking is a sin. Boy, you're going to have to stretch scripture here, guys. You have to really stretch. Okay? Because if you say that smoking is a sin based on the fact that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, let me ask you something else. How much sugar do you put in your body daily? How much processed foods do you go buy? Okay, so smoking's bad. What if they vape? You know, it's 25 times less harmful than smoking, right? So therefore, those of you who love sugar and eat a lot of sweets, you actually are worse than the people who vape. I once served with somebody in ministry who had McDonald's every day. They were doing more harm to themselves than somebody who vapes. So what rules are we going to choose, people? Huh? Which ones? Because for every rule that you come up with, I bet you I can come up with a rule that actually shows how other people are behaving just as bad. So what's the difference? Here's the difference. What happens when we become Christians? Our minds become transformed. Isn't that the process of transformation? Do we all all get transformed by the Spirit in the same way? No. No. Not at all. In fact, there are struggles that I have today that I didn't realize were a problem. Christ waited 30 years. Okay, it's time. My son, you need to work on this. It's like, what? Lord, why didn't you show me this 30 years ago? You weren't ready. We are constantly being transformed. Constantly. And there are things that God dealt with me early on in my walk 
that he might choose to do 30 years from now for you. Because you're not ready. We're constantly at work. If, you're, if you understand poor in spirit, you know what that means? You understand that there's so much about you that is wrong and so far from the righteousness and perfection of God that even a lifetime won't be enough to correct it. Do you understand that? When you truly understand that you're poor in spirit and that you're so far from the righteousness and perfection of God, it doesn't matter how much time you can dedicate your entire life and you would never be able to deal with everything that God needs to deal with you in your life. So you might say, well, well, we should just give up. Isn't that what Paul said? Well, we might as well just give up and just do whatever we want. But that's not the point. The point is the journey. And you see, when we start to understand that, and we start to relate to the world, the Roman world, because the Roman world back then and the world today is very much the same, we begin to realize, hey, I can't change them with outward things. I can't change somebody from doing X, Y, Z based on my opinion, the way I live. What needs to happen first? They need to surrender to Christ. First and foremost. That's the most important thing. After the Beatitudes, what is, what is Luke right that Jesus said? You need to be the salt and light of the world. In other words, you need to stand out. And you will be persecuted for standing out. You will be. People will lie because they see that you're strange and different. You don't do the things they do. I remember when I became a Christian, all my friends stopped hanging out with me. Because I got boring. I won't go to the bar anymore, get drunk. I wouldn't go do drugs. I wouldn't go beat up people. I was boring. Just stop hanging out with me. I didn't want to hang out with them either if they were going to do those things. But, I never turned my back on them. I always felt I couldn't turn my back on them. So I tried to talk to them where I could and everything. And you know, 10 years later, one of my friends called me and he goes, hey, Julio, this is my best friend, and we used to do some crazy things, like crazy things. Like really, really crazy things. I remember once we were at a party, and it was like 4 in the morning, and we convinced a whole bunch of guys to switch cars in, in, in driveways. You know, like we took people's car, we actually lifted them up, put them, and we switched them. Can you imagine a, 10 guys going, taking a car? <laughs> Boom. Right? And then we tried to stay awake to see what would happen in the morning when they go to work. We, we, we couldn't stay up. We fell asleep. But I bet, I, I, could you see the faces of the people when they go, how come my car's over there in my neighbor's driveway? I became boring. I wouldn't do that anymore. And so my friend who used to be in these escapades with me, um, he calls me up and goes, Julio. I go, oh, Oral. How are you doing, Oral? And, and he goes, I'm good, Julio. I, I really wanted to call you and tell you something. I go, what? I'm born again. I'm a Christian. And I cried. 
And he goes, I remember when you became a Christian, you stopped doing a whole bunch of stuff. And, and my, my sisters were Christian, and we'd go to church every day, and that always stayed in my mind. And, and you never turned your back on me, but I turned my back on you, you know. And, but if we stop being compassionate and loving to people, isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, what happened when, when they threw the prostitute in front of him? Huh? Could have done the rules-based thing. But Jesus showed compassion. Why? Because until she accepts Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, she's not going to understand she needs to have transform in her life. Until your neighbors who do crazy things that you might not agree with accept Jesus in their life, they're going to see it as normal. And you need to respect that. You need to respect that in your workplace. You need to respect that. You don't have to accept it. That's a big difference. You don't, you don't accept it. You don't absorb it. You don't follow it. You don't do any of those things, but you respect it. Because it's not your job to change them. It's not. Christ deals with the inward and the transformation. We are the salt of the earth and the light of this world. And if we're persecuted because of the way we live and the way we behave, then that's okay. If we're persecuted because we are peacemakers, because we are poor in spirit and meek, that is okay. Because this is what verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for you the reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Be persecuted for that, but don't be persecuted because you're legalistic and you're pointing out all the flaws in their life or all the flaws in your company or your school. Or putting down people for the way they behave. If you're persecuted for that, well, you know what? You, you, you've got a, a great example in, in the in the leadership of 2,000 years ago. They were persecuted too. The Romans hated the Jews just as much because they knew that the Jews hated them. They were always rebelling against them, always fighting them. They hated each other. But when you become a peacemaker, people will struggle with the persecution, I guarantee you. People will struggle with the persecution. You see, as Christians start to live out the Beatitudes in the first century, the second century, and third century, the, the elites started saying, oh, Christianity is for slaves and poor people. Because you see, it was the Christians that would go out and help the poor. It was the Christians that would have places for people who were hurt to come and be healed. 
It was the Christians who reached out to the slaves and those who were beaten and treated unfairly. And so the elite in Rome started saying, oh, Christianity is for the slaves and the poor and the women. And you see what happened is Christians in their humbleness just wanted to bless and love people. And as they came to Christ, the Spirit transformed them. The Spirit transformed their mind. They began to live differently. The slaves began to be examples for their owners. The owners started seeing a change in the slaves. They then asked, what's going on with you? How come you're behaving differently? And the slaves back then aren't what we experienced in here in North America. They were the Slavs from Eastern Europe. So they were like the Germanic and Slavs working in, in the Italian and Greek towns as slaves. Completely the same way, totally different cultures, torn away from their homes violently. And then they, they experienced Christ and all the hatred of what had been done to them goes away. And then the, the hatred to get transformed with love and compassion, even for the slave owners. And so all of a sudden, the women, because it's a hierarchy, right? The women start to see, oh, there's a change. And then the men, and then eventually, a society starts to be impacted in a big way. Why? Because they saw people who were poor in spirit, who were peacemakers. And when they were persecuted, when they were burned as lanterns, when they were thrown to lions, they had Jesus Christ as the example. And they relied on his strength, not on their own. The world doesn't need more rules or scrutiny or advice or arguments. Here's a poem. Don't find fault with the man who limps or stumbles along life's road unless you have worn the shoes he wears or struggled beneath his load. There may be tacks in his shoes that hurt, though hidden away from our view. The burden he bears, if placed on your back, might cause you to stumble too. Don't be too hard on the man who errs or pelt him with wood or stone unless you are sure Yea, double sure that you have no fault, your own. Proverbs 16, 23, 24. From a wise mind comes wise speech. The words of the wise are persuasive. Kind words are like honey. Sweet to the soul, healthy for the body. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. People are suffering from anxiety all over the place. Will we be the peacemakers that deliver that good word? Will we? 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved who correctly handles the word of truth. You see, as I close, let me share something with you. 
we all have a scribe in us. As soon as you start to think that you don't, that's it. You're already in trouble. Already in trouble. The best thing we got to do is be self-aware. We have problems. There's a Pharisee or a scribe always wanting to come out. It's our human nature. First thing is to acknowledge it. Because once you acknowledge it, you can deal with it in prayer. The second thing is you got to live the life of salt and light. You do. If you're not living the Christian life, then you're living in darkness, just like they are. How is your life as an example? Are you living the life of an example that they can see a difference? Even if they persecute you, swear at you, do bad things. There was one guy at my work that was always on my case saying bad things behind my back for years. Man, there was times that I felt like pelting him or getting back at him. Oh. Oh. But I kept praying about it. I knew it was wrong. Deep down inside, I knew my, my, that was wrong. That was that nature. That was that Pharisee inside Julia wanted to come out. And the year that I left work, he actually warmed up to me. We actually became friends, and he contacted me afterwards. But that was a struggle for me. Our worlds need to build up, right? Our words need to be building up, not tearing down. Are you somebody who tears down or are you somebody that builds up? Because I tell you, words that tear down can do it very effectively. You see, that man that was smoking in the back, what happened was one of the people from the church went and said, smoking is a sin. How dare you even smoke on this church property? He felt so torn, so hurt, he never came back. And I know that the person who, who said that didn't have a life of light and salt. And isn't that ironic that the more that we don't walk the narrow road, the more we become critical. So there is something there, guys. We need to be on the straight and narrow. So I ask you, take a leap in the dark. It's a leap of faith. Engage our culture and our society. Don't accept what they have to offer that's contrary to what God has taught. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In fact, you have so much to offer. Do you believe that Christ has given you so much that you have so much to offer? It's true. You have so much to give. So much to offer. So much to bless people with. And that's what we need to do as a church. Amen?
let us stand up as, and, and I ask the band to come. Now, let me ask you, how many of you struggle with the little Pharisee inside of you, huh? How many? All right, see honest hands in there, all right. That's it. How many struggle with all the stuff that's happening in our schools and work, and we're going, oh my goodness. Come on, put up your hands, you struggle. Let's confess it. We struggle with it. It makes us angry. It's wrong. That's fine to be in a righteous anger, but don't let that anger be anger that gets directed at people. We all struggle with that. I admit it. Whenever I see... You know, like I, I, at my work, I have to always see the policies that come out because of my role. And, and sometimes I see those policies. Sometimes policies are fine, you know. It's other ones, I go, what? It's so weird. And my first reaction is anger. And then I go, wait a minute. The people who wrote this don't know what I know. If they knew what I knew... Totally different. If Christ had a chance to transform lives that wrote that, it'd probably be written very, very differently. And I think that's the way that we have to approach it. We can't expect them to live the way we did, and we can't be like the Pharisees back in, in Rome who hated anybody who didn't see things the way they did. We got to be as compassionate with every single person as the prostitute who was laid before Jesus' feet. That is how we engage the world with compassion. That is how. And all of you that put up your hands, I'm going to pray. We're going to pray. And we're going to ask God to help us with the Pharisee in us. We're going to ask God to help us with the anger to make sure that that anger doesn't turn to hate. And then we're going to praise God and thank him for his work. And then I have a call for you afterwards. Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, we confess that we don't always get it right. But you're a merciful God that you always are ready to forgive. Help us to be poor in spirit and to seek righteousness. To mourn where there's sin, not to judge. And to be peacemakers in this world, regardless of the circumstances. Regardless. And Lord, we struggle with the Pharisee inside us, the scribe, the religious aspect. We confess it here today. So many hands went up. We confess it. I confess it, Lord. Destroy that in us towards each other and towards the people outside. Help us to have righteous anger when we see things.
not to choose one sin over another as better or worse than others, but actually to mourn, to mourn when we see those things and to have compassion on people who don't see what we do. Help us to pray for them. Help us to pray for the places, the mission field you take us every day. In our homes, in our works, in our school, everywhere. We are a work in progress until the day we come to you. And we realize and confess here today, Lord, that there's still a lot to be done in our lives. So please, take us, mold us. And Lord, help us to understand all that you've done for us, that you've given us. There's so much that you've already done. There's so much potential here in this church and, and across the world. Your body, Lord, with its gifts and the mercy and grace that people have tasted are powerful weapons to be a light and salt in this world. And so I pray for everyone here, Lord, to be bold, to take courage in what they have and to realize that they can make a difference. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show them how in each situation you promised that you would provide the words and the way. So show us how. Show us how to be the light and salt. We confess all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you today. You have the Spirit of God in you. The Holy Spirit. Christ is your King. Even if they came today to imprison you, to kill you, a billion years from now, it'd mean nothing. A billion years, trillion years from now, it'd mean nothing. But let's do it in a way that people will say, you know, we did something to that person, but deep down inside they'll realize they didn't deserve it. Because you see, when we're judgmental and we're angry and they hit back at us, we deserve it. But when we, through peace and love and compassion, show the light and salt, even when they persecute us, the Spirit is at work in their hearts. How do I know that? Because you see, I grew up in a home my parents were Christian and man did I make it hard for them I was not an easy son and my mom shed many tears for the things I said and did but that's what it takes and I'm here today thankfully not for harsh pharisaical words that came out of their mouth but kind wise words Amen. Amen. God bless.